The Cleveland Metropolitan School District recently announced it's facing a $140 million deficit, in part because the aid it received during the COVID-19 pandemic is ending. It's been a scramble ever since, with the district's board announcing that it's marked $130 million in cuts to address the whole. Akron Schools also facing a budget shortfall that its administration is contending with. We'll talk about these issues with IdeaStream education reporter Connor Morris. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Later in the show, we'll talk to a former Cleveland Metropolitan School District teacher who spent five years teaching second graders. Cortez Harris went on to write a book of poetry based on that experience called We Made It to School Alive. And finally, we'll speak with longtime local journalist Connie Schultz, whose new book, Lola and the Troll, tells children what they must do against a modern-day troll. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. The Cleveland Metropolitan School District recently announced it was facing a more than $140 million deficit and is projected to have a negative cash balance of $18 million by the end of the next fiscal year. This week, the district's Board of Education voted on a plan proposing $130 million in spending cuts. The plan will be sent to the Ohio Department of Education and Workforce, and if implemented, could eliminate several programs that were financed by federal relief funds from the COVID-19 pandemic. Akron Public Schools is also forecasting a shortfall of over $16 million by 2025 that is projected to increase to almost $38 million by 2028. And it's not just K-12 schools that are struggling financially. Many colleges and universities, both public and private, are also contending with budgetary issues. Eastern Gateway Community College, which has campuses in Steubenville and Youngstown, recently halted all enrollment due to financial problems after a U.S. Department of Education investigation delayed federal funding that the college relies on. Some other colleges that recently announced major cuts include Kent State University, Baldwin-Wallace University, and Youngstown State University. Today, we're going to discuss the economic landscape of education in the region with Ideastream's own education reporter, Connor Morris, who's been very busy covering these issues in the, over the last month, let's say. <laughs> Thanks for joining me in studio, Connor. Yeah, uh, Budget Watch. That should be my new title, Budget Watch Reporter. <laughs> yeah, I like saw that. a tweet of yours saying... <laughs> Essentially, I'm life. not stopping. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, if you'd like to weigh in on the topic, perhaps you're a student or a parent that's impacted. We'd love to hear from you. You can call us on our toll-free line, 866-578-0903. Once again, 866-578-0903. Shoot us an email at soi at ideastream.org or tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Later at about 9.30, we're going to be speaking to a former CMSD teacher who wrote a book of poems about his years in the classroom called We Made It to School Alive. And we're going to end today's show with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Connie Schultz, who is out with a new children's book. Excited about that conversation. But first, let's discuss schools and their budgets. Okay, Connor. CMSD's deficit we mentioned in the beginning, $143 million. Tell us about why this is so significant and how it compares to other school districts in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, so we do like maybe a quick explainer on what the deficit is. So it's sure. it's the yearly annual deficit. So it's, you know, revenue, less expenses, 
Uh, so there's been some confusion on that front, but basically it means, you know, if it continues, as you mentioned at the top, district's going to be out of money, you know, negative cash balance by the end of next year, of the next school year. So that's serious, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's pretty sizable for any school district, uh, even one as large as CMSD. Their annual budget's like 700, 800 million or so. Uh, it's larger than what other districts are seeing for sure. Um, Akron's, as you mentioned, trying to maybe cut 15 million or so uh, this year. Um, and, you know, they just approved that budget reduction plan. So, I mean, that's calling for some significant cuts for sure. So I think what we were seeing in the news, what the council was questioning and people are questioning generally is, you know, if you've got a seven, eight hundred dollar million dollar budget. Yeah. Where was the anticipation that one hundred and forty three million dollars deficit was something that the district was going to be facing. Why didn't they see this coming? Yeah. And the district would would say and former leaders uh, would say, hey, uh, we have seen this coming. You know, uh, they have these five year forecasts that every school district does. uh, And since at least like 2021 or so, uh, they've been forecasting a deficit was coming, you know, as soon as 2025 or so, 2026. Uh, This is coming a little bit quicker though and it's it's quite a bit larger than what some folks were anticipating mayor bibb said hey i talked to former ceo eric gordon you know in november 2022 we were talking around then the deficit would start to get pretty serious gonna need a levy uh and then new ceo warren morgan got into office uh in uh you know the middle of last year and uh he took a deeper look at the budget and his accounting of it suggested that it might be a little bit more serious. The big thing here is that uh, CMSD got a lot of pandemic funding, like $450 million. Uh, That's larger than pretty much any other school in in Ohio. Um, And it's based on need. It's based on how many students are, are, you know, low income and a couple other factors. So CMSDs was, was pretty sizable. So they were using that. It's temporary money. They had to spend it. You know, it ends. You can't spend it after September of this year. So uh, they used that money to pay for a lot of things. Uh, you know, it, uh, there was tech, one-to-one technology, one device for each kid, school nursing. They really uh, increased their school nursing staff a lot. Um, you know, a lot of it was one-time expenses, but also there were programs, too. Uh, so uh, summer programming, um, after-school programming, those were boosted significantly. And some folks are really concerned because it's like they're going to have to cut back on those things now. Well, and in their defense, I was education reporter at yeah. that time, uh, you know, communicating a lot with the CEO, Eric Gordon, and hearing about reporting on these programs. Yeah. And I think there was an urgency in the sense that there is going to be an academic slide that we cannot get back from if yeah. we don't deal with the fact that when these kids were remote and really kind of checked out from school because there's so much going on um, – you know, away from the brick and mortar classroom that uh, these kids are going to be in major trouble and it's going to affect their long term education. So I just I want to bring that to kind of add to the context of like, let's do something about how these kids are essentially not going to school for a year or being asked to take a class as a first grader through Zoom, you know. So the, you're absolutely right there uh, that really online learning really set back a lot of kids and, and folks are really kind of re- have been reanalyzing that, you know, in recent last year or so and be like, actually, this was really bad for for kids uh, in terms of, you know, that we see test scores set back. Absenteeism is, is sky high right now. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it, it caused some serious problems. And so there folks are saying, hey, we use this money to try to catch kids up. 
the problem though is that that continuing spending piece of exactly. it. So the some there are some pretty pretty staunch defenders of uh, the way that the school district handled it. Uh, Teachers Union President Sherry Obrensky, you know, said, "Look, I think the way that we handled the budgeting was was sound because we were using the pandemic money to pay for." This nursing and, and and other some sort of staffing and things like that. And then we save that money. So, you know, the district's cash balance for the end of this year looks pretty good. It's like 140 million. That's like higher than it's been in a long time. But the problem is if you keep acting like you're going to be spending like you have been spending on those pandemic relief funding, uh, which she raised some concerns about, uh, then you're going to see a very large deficit. So Yeah. And I guess that's what kind of the. Uh the critical mass of of criticism is yeah. is that you can't fund programs that are supposed to be long lasting and sustained yeah. if you know there is a cliff you know from the federal government funding yeah. um so and there's an anticipation that we're going to have to scramble and figure out how to keep those programs going yeah and the, the you know to the their credit school boards um a couple different you know, there's a relatively, you know, new uh, number of school board members now who were put in place by Mayor Justin Bibb uh, last summer, uh, and then even before that too, with other four former board members who have cycled out. They've been talking about that fiscal cliff. Uh, schools have been talking about this okay. for a while, so you know, they have been talking about it. What we heard this week and last week with Cleveland City Council, you know, they're they're really just frustrated. Like, how did it get to this point? Sure. Uh, Council Member Richard Starr has been one of the most vociferous folks, and. He wore a shirt this week uh, when they were talking to CEO uh, Warren Morgan that said, who's getting fired? Right. Uh, and wow. that's something that said he said last week, too, as well. You know, he alleges that the district's current and past leaderships really kind of mismanaged funds. Uh, he's upset, too. And there's some context. I mean, he was uh, worked with the Boys and Girls Club in Northeast Ohio. They provide after school programs um, have been they receive pandemic funding uh, to continue to, uh, you know, kind of boost those offerings. And so. That you know, he it probably hits close to home for him. Also, well, is uh, that one of the programs that's going to have to go? So uh, there are 94 after-school programs that mm. are uh, run by uh, external f- nonprofits and and local agencies that are not going to be getting funding anymore. Now the school district says we've only been giving funding to these agencies and nonprofits for the last two years. Before they were able to offer some of these programs without our help. We're going to work with them to see, you know, how they can continue, but we can't fund them at the rate that we were before. And it's, it's pretty significant. I mean, the district's estimated it could save, I, th- I believe it was like 20 to $30 million or so by not continuing those programs. And, you know, folks like Obrensky with the teachers union say, we're going to have to do this, you know. Uh, and the district's point is that, and uh, the current CEO, you know, Warren Morgan, his point is that, we're really trying to prevent these cuts from hitting the classroom door. Right. It's going to have to be these external programs and also administration as well, too. Um, so and we can talk about that more in, in a sec here. All right. So if you want to participate in the conversation, have a question for Connor, 866-578-0903 or email us at SOI at ideastream.org. So I know that you spoke with the current CEO about this situation. Uh, can you set up uh, the soundbite we're going to hear? Yeah. So he was talking during this Board of Ed meeting this week where they were approving the budget reduction plan that they're sending to the state. And he was saying, you know, the only layoffs called for so far about 25 positions in central office. Okay. But 
as you'll hear here, still people. Because of course we are protecting schools, schools are very important, our central office is important too, and um, we are making that sacrifice uh, to, to make sure that we put this forth in helping our scholars, but it doesn't mean that there are not people that are impacted. So, uh, and it's actually a lot more serious than just 25 people. So there's two rounds of central office layoffs they're proposing mm. here. First one, 25 people, it's maybe $6 million or so that'll be cut. The second wave is $40 million. Mm. And if that's just people you're cutting, that's going to be a lot of people laid off. Now, uh, Morgan told, Dr. Morgan told me that uh, that could be programs as well, too, which could end up affecting academic programs as well, because there, there might be a house out of the central office. You know, it could be somebody who's running a program for some schools and that could end up getting cut. So, so even with that, the potential of staff, administrative staff and maybe some programming within the classroom yeah. could be impacted. So that that's what we're looking at down the road a bit. So these right. are going to be phased in over the next two years, essentially. All right, let's hear from Sherry Obrunsky, the president of the Cleveland Teachers Union, who also spoke at uh, the meeting that we referenced earlier, talking about a manufactured deficit. The children's story of Chicken Little reminds us that when we shout about great disaster that is in fact, isn't in fact occurring, others are not inclined to believe us when there is a real crisis. When the district presents a manufactured deficit triggering a state deficit reduction plan and tells the public that they are cutting programs that were temporary to begin with. Yeah. And so she was saying and she continued on there saying that's creating a lot of angst in the community because we're looking at this big, as we were talking about earlier, this big one hundred forty three million dollars deficit, you know, annual annual deficit. That's scary looking, and that's what's catching people. They're kind of getting sticker shock. But she's saying, actually, a lot of this stuff we weren't even doing before the pandemic. Right. And so, you know, it seems a lot bigger than it might be. And and that is a point. I mean, the optics are, oh, the district is, you know, out of hand, mismanaging money. Didn't you know at the same time uh, if the money was temporary and the programs were temporary? But maybe that should have been the point that the district was explaining that we don't know how yeah. we'll sustain these programs. Yeah. And so the districts and, and, you know, I should mention, too, the CEO Warren Morgan's you know response was, hey, we showed you this forecast in November of last year. You could have told us you could have shared your concerns then. And her counter is, you know, probably should have started really talking about the cuts then before we really needed to get into this whole state you know, budget reduction plan process. Okay, let's take a call from Janice in Cleveland. Janice, good morning. Go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to know if you're going to cover all the money that is being um, shipped to charter schools and through voucher programs, too. There's okay. a lot of money that comes, the tax money that goes into private pockets, especially with the charter schools. Oh, okay. I appreciate your call, Janice. And, you know, Janice brings up a point that I think a lot of people in Ohio have, which is, you know, state responsibility, state funding. And of course, you know, the money that goes to the voucher program, uh, not into the public schools. And that's increased because of the universal voucher program. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's increased drastically. The the state legislature has funneled, you know, about a billion dollars, uh, estimated a billion dollars to go to fund vouchers uh, for private schools this year. So the state also has said 
they're also increasing funding uh, slowly over the last two years and, and then the next year as well, too, for public schools through the what's known as the fair school funding plan. So they're saying we're doing both, you know, uh, and that's statehouse Republicans, of course, and the governor. But uh, it, it's a fair point. That's a lot of money. going, And, and state le- leaders have already said, we don't know if we can really continue to fund public education at the rate we are if we keep increasing. So uh, it's a fair point. OK, let's talk about Akron. What are they facing? Yeah, so they're uh, def- they're looking at a deficit that's a little further out, maybe 2027, 2026 or so. They're trying to make about $15 million in cuts this year. Uh, the the uh, superintendent told me, you know, last year he's really hoping that they can make uh, those cuts mostly through like attrition, really not trying to lay anybody off, hoping nobody loses their jobs. Uh, they're facing some similar headwinds. Uh, you know, all of these school districts across Ohio are facing. Uh, increasing, you know, just cost of everything is increasing significantly due to inflation. Uh, they say that the fair school funding plan, that that money that's increasing for each school district is not really keeping up with that. Uh, you know, declining enrollment is a big deal, too. Schools sure. are losing money uh, because of that. Akron's seen a big decrease, as has Cleveland, too. So on the flip side of that, uh, to deal with declining enrollment, Akron also announces a pretty big, big expansion, which is, you tell me. Yeah, it was kind of uh, a little bit of like a, a nugget kind of hidden in uh, the board meeting that w- where there's some discussions about the redistricting plan this week. But uh, the superintendent, uh, Michael Robinson, said, we're going forward with full day uh, preschool for, for anybody that wants it uh, starting in fall. And, you know, kind of building it as they go here, uh, you know, he didn't ask for any approval from the board. He said, we'll, we'll get some grants. We'll move some money around. We just want to get started because he really views it as a way to bring people back to the school district. And studies show, I mean, Jenny, you've probably reported on this before, too, that preschool is super important for getting kids like kind of up to the level that they need to be before they get to school because a lot of kids are coming in really far behind. And I think there's data showing that that uh, pre-K long term for a child's education and kind of, you know, holistic well-being is um, really impactful. Huge deal. That's worthy of a whole other conversation that we'll we'll have down the line. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the colleges. Yeah. Higher education. Eastern Gateway Community College. What is this controversy, it seems, Martin? Oh, man, this one's really interesting. So this is a college in Steubenville with locations in Youngstown. They said last week, and this announcement came as a surprise to students and faculty, that they're halting all enrollment. Uh, Anyone not graduating this year, and that's about 7,000 students or so, they've got to enroll elsewhere. So these are students that, uh, you know, they're, they're attending a community college. They might not have the the funds to really drive really far. Uh, how do they figure out financial aid to go elsewhere? Do their credits transfer? It's a it's it's a pretty big mess for, for them. And for uh, faculty, they're really concerned that the college could close, you know, indefinitely, too. So how did that happen? How did they get to this so, point? And what are they saying they're going to do to rebound? The backstory is very interesting here. So they had this free tuition program that anyone affiliated with a union could could get. Uh, the U.S. Department of Education said that's really problematic because. <laughs> Sounds problematic. Well, you know, it was it was really a window for a lot of folks who might not have been able to attend college to attend college. You know, sure. so it, it's the, the intention, I think, was was was, you know, good, I think, from leaders. But. The problem that the U.S. Department of Ed found was that they're essentially zeroing out any tuition that these folks owe owe to the school. So they're getting free college and then the school is not paying for it. So the uh, U.S. Department of Ed is saying you're basically being funded by Pell Grants and federal assistance and then you're not 
you don't have any other money that you're bringing in to, to pay for these students who are getting free college. So they had to end that program last year. Q, 6,000 students oh. drop an enrollment, 15,000, like 9,000 now. Uh, so pretty serious gap what there. what are they to do? Yeah, so they are really trying to figure it out. The federal, the U.S. Department of Ed has also really delayed any federal funding as they're investigating. The U.S. Uh, Ohio Auditor of State is also investigating. Two officials were indicted last year. Two his former officials were indicted last year. Those charges were dropped, could still be refiled, though. So it, it's a bit of a mess. Okay, we have three minutes left, so let's talk about Kent State University. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they are rolling out some cuts over the next three years. They're trying to do it as methodically as they can. Sure. Uh, the president says we really, really don't want to lay anybody off, going to do attrition, close some buildings that are not using as much anymore, really mm-hmm. kind of combining things. Uh, but he said that basically they're going to need to operate with a much smaller staff uh, going forward over the next three years in order to kind of stay afloat. And they did get uh, some good news this last uh, fall with a pretty pretty good uh, high enrollment, uh, you know, highest enrollment they've had in a long time. Now let's move over to Youngstown State. Yeah. So uh, they announced uh, some program cuts recently to they're basically some lower enrolled programs, arts, um, music, education, uh, you know, geography. So they're cutting the programs completely because they were just low enrolled. And they're cutting. They said that they were going to be cutting some staff likely on top of that. The latest is that thank they say, thankfully, uh, you know, they didn't they're not going to have to cut anybody because uh, enough people have taken buyouts. So. And then finally, Baldwin-Wallace, I mean, there has been controversy, it seems, simmering over the finances in that yeah. university with concerned faculty. So what's happening there? Yeah, so they cut. Uh, they announced that they're going to have to cut about 23 faculty positions in light of a budget deficit. Mm. They did, again, they've had some, you know, a better enrollment picture than other colleges in you know the last year or so. But they say that just because of incre- kind of everyone dealing with increasing cost of you know doing business, basically, part of the challenge is uh, there have been some allegations about uh, previous mismanagement as well related to finances too as well. Mm. Um, but you know more to dig in there for, as well for sure. So is there kind of a thread through all of these budget shortfalls and yeah. you know need to cut programs? Is it pandemic related? You know we're throwing all this information at the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering if there is a context to why we're, we're hearing about this kind of both on the K through 12 and then um, higher ed level. Yeah if I could start briefly with, with higher ed you know uh, they have seen declining enrollment for some time. I mean they really things were going you know really well in like the 2010, 2015 time period, been on a steady decline since then. The pandemic really hurt their enrollment as well. Again, rising costs of doing business, as I mentioned, it's all hitting them all pretty hard. Um, And then also there's this demographic cliff that's really, they're all competing for a smaller number of high school aged folks, uh, just the birth rates declining. So there's just fewer people that uh, they're all kind of competing for and scrambling, trying to get them with, uh, get students in with, you know, um, either enticing non-traditional students who are older or uh, trying to offer more tuition benefits. And so a little bit of a race to the bottom almost in terms of offering, you know, more incentives, which is hitting their bottom line a little more to try to get fewer fewer and fewer students in. So what is that? Is that like Gen X not having kids? 
I, it's, at yeah, the rate that I, yeah i think it's we'll figure that out yeah out yeah okay. I know. <laughs> all right we got an email from murad who said as a former educator i heard that most of those pandemic funds were use it or lose it type of money schools yeah. are pretty much forced to spend them so it led to an unplanned expansion of programs with effective planning it could have been planned so those programs slowly decommissioned i think fed and state governments are also responsible for this murad thanks so much for your email and connor morris idea streams education reporter thank you so much always great to have you in studio keep watching all of this and come back on and 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 share your reporting with us oh i love to thanks so much jenny it's always fun thanks connor we're taking a short break stay tuned for our chat with cortez harris a former cmsd teacher who recently published a book of poems that was republished with new poems called we made it to school alive this is the sound of ideas i'm jenny hamill we'll be right back You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for staying with us this hour. Cleveland-based writer Cortez Harris spent six years as a teacher, five of those teaching second graders in the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Harris went on to write a book of poetry based on his time as a teacher at CMSD. He says where he saw the hardships these students faced, but also saw their humanity and vibrance. Earlier this month, in honor of Black History Month, Cortez joined the Rebel Readers Book Club at Loganberry Books in Larchmere to read and discuss poems from this award-winning collection called We Made It to School Alive. He joins me now in studio. Cortez, good morning. Good morning. And if you'd like to join the conversation, call 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So, Cortez, to be fair, your book was published several years ago, but then republished with some new poetry. Is that right? Yes. So this is a remarkable re-release, and I say remarkable because my son is on the back cover. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it makes it remarkable. Yes, and he's holding a real monarch butterfly. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so, Cortez, why the title, We Made It to School Alive? Well, the title comes out of my unnerving concern with a student um, who I particularly assume was fearless. And he approached me one day after school and he expressed a concern. And he said, Mr. Harris, can you call my mom and tell her pick me up? And I said, well, generally you walk to school and you walk home. And he said, well, that's true, but my brother didn't come to school today and all I hear is gunshots. And mm-hmm. I was just so concerned and appalled that this second grader um this is his concern today is making it home safely and his brother who is probably his protector yes wasn't there to walk with yes. him to give him comfort yes so I, I i got a sense that his brother was um someone who particularly ensured that he felt safe you know and the fact that his brother wasn't there i felt like he did not feel um like he was in a safe space so that really um struck me and it also um, developed my empathy, you know, um, for kids who um, wrestle with things that I have no direct experience with. And do you think that you had a preconception of what teaching second graders would be like? Was this among the eye-opening uh, moments for you as a second grade teacher in CMSD that made you realize there's other factors at play here? Well, the first was the dilapidated school building. When I had my first interview, um, I was appalled by the conditions of the school. 
Um, it looked totally outdated. Um, there were very few functioning computers. The school gen- it honestly didn't look like it was functioning. Um, and I was sort of curious about how our kids expected to compute and compete in these environments. And so that was an eye-opener. Yeah, that was a very eye-opening experience for me. And uh, these children, I mean, did they show a zest for learning and a zest to be in school, these second graders? Yes, they showed a zest to be seen. Um, these kids somehow, in spite of their um, low-income environments, um, they came to school with a sense of hopefulness. I like to think that um, I had a lot to do with that. Um, being a minority, a male, um, we only represent 2% of the population of um, educators. So I think that meant something, that they got to see an intellectual model um, who may have resembled their, their brothers, um, their dads. And and I thought that, um, wow. And I remember, I vividly recall a parent um, tell told her child, like, oh, my gosh, look, you have a black male teacher. You've never had one. I've never had one. And, and then I started wow. thinking about the generational story of how there are um, parents who went to school and they never had an experience of having a, a teacher of color. Um, so absolutely, there was some um, a cultural sensitivity there. But also, I think um, kids were excited because they saw that I was excited to be there. So that reflected yes, on them. I think sort of my passion for ensuring that their humanity was reflected in literature just by ensuring that they had books that looked like them. I think that sort of stirred their excitement. Also, just my excitement, just the fact that I have the privilege to be in this space. You know, it's really hard for um, minority teachers to get into the educational sector. So for me being a black presence, um, I, sh- I felt like, oh, wow, this is my way of ensuring that they can see themselves and they can see their own possibilities. So you really took yourself as a role model seriously as a black man in a classroom serving as a teacher for these kids? Well, yeah, because I don't come from a point point of economic privilege. I certainly don't come from a, um, a higher educational background. Um, I struggled with learning when I was um, from pe- – kindergarten, but from second grade all the way through college, I had an IEP and poor reading comprehension, poor writing expression. So for me, being a teacher was an act of disbelief. I couldn't believe I was able to be a teacher. So it really evoked a sense of possibilities for what I knew was possible for my students. So yeah, I I took just um, my experience in the classroom seriously because I couldn't believe I was in this room. Why don't you read a uh, poem from your book of poetry, We Made It to School oh, yeah, Alive? Sure. So, um, I would like to read a poem, one of my favorite poems entitled Ocean. I, I, I do want to say this. Um, when I wrote this book, I really was setting out to um, document the humanity of my students and to write in um, their unheard voices. But also I use magical realism a lot. So I depended on... Um, a lot of scenes of water and how water can be magical as a stretch and extended metaphor. So this poem is really about my hopefulness for my students. And this is from the point of view of a parent. Ocean. My son runs his hands across a puddle outside our apartment. Pretends it's an ocean he can swim in. I sent him to the school I dropped out of hoping this time the teacher will hand him a telescope so he can see the world for himself. My son's desk looks how I left it. His teachers still haven't told him that this world is a sea of wells. He watches YouTube in class as proof that somewhere, water is wider than his classroom. At recess, I used to swing high as moss. Pushed high enough, I almost saw beyond the rooftops. I can still feel the hands. You see, I hope he doesn't grow up like me holding down mop buckets just to keep the water running. I pray he can swim as far 
as his hands chooses to reach, where there is no cliff, no shore, no horizon. I always thought Glenville was the whole universe, and the sun and moon only had my son to look after. I haven't left. Can't afford a U-Haul to carry our things across the street. My son keeps begging me to take him to see the world. I'm afraid there are only swamps for him to dip his head in. We went to a parent-teacher's conference. A poster hung from some cobweb. It read, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. Well, I told my son that poster may never move us out the hood, but that isn't to say his mind is not a grenade, because if he uses it, he could explode into a sea of reefs. So that perspective from the parent, what is the parent seeing? The parent is seeing himself. The parent is seeing the educational system that failed him. Yet the parent seems to have a perpetual hopefulness that, okay, I was failed, I was let down, but hopefully this time that this system of education can ensure that my son has an experience that I didn't have. But I still have some concerns, um, but also those concerns will not bar me from actually believing that my son can actually go somewhere, some someplace else, some some larger body of water he can swim in. Um, and I, and also I'm thinking through the sentiments of I had a lot of students who never been to Lake Erie. Wow. So that's why I chose to use water as an extended metaphor to express to the say reality. W- even mm-hmm. within our own yes, cities. within our own cities, that some kids can't even see their own landscapes. Well, Cortez, uh, I, I was moved by your book of poetry. It has been republished. Yes. I thank you for coming on to talk to us about your book of poetry, We Made It to School Alive. Cleveland-based writer Cortez Harris, who I know is working on some new books, but we're not going to talk about that yet. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in studio and talking to me. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but on the other side, we're going to be talking to longtime journalist and columnist Connie Schultz about her new children's book, Lola and the Troll. That's coming up. We'll be right back. It's the sound of ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us this hour. The term troll has been around for centuries, maybe longer. And for much of that time, it's conjured images of monstrous creatures, sometimes living under a bridge, terrorizing passersby. But in the last several years, the term has shifted a lot, often referring to users on the Internet engaged in anonymous harassment. Both of those concepts of the troll, the monster, the harassment, play out in a new children's book called Lola and the Troll. The author is someone familiar to many of us in Northeast Ohio, longtime columnist, journalist, and educator Connie Schultz. Connie joins me in studio to talk about her new children's book. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Jenny. It's nice to be back. Yeah, and great to have you. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for Connie, call 866-578-0903. Once again, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So, Connie, your resume is long and lengthy. Let's not do that. (laughs) But now you add children's book author to the list. Yes. What was the impetus? I was discovered on Twitter, the, the, the haven for trolls, I had just announced as a joke that I think I'm going to write a children's book and call it Tom the Troll Has Been Blocked because I'm constantly blocking trolls 
well, I was on Twitter a lot before it became X, and then over on Facebook. And um, within an hour, my agent, Gail Ross, called me and said, why are you writing a children's book when you're supposed to be finishing your next novel? I said, I, I'm not writing a children's book. And she said, you are now. <laughs> and it was Casey McIntyre from Razor Bill, which is an imprint of Random House, had seen it, contacted Gail and said, we want Connie to write that book. And that is how it started. And many of your listeners will have heard of Casey McIntyre, even if they don't realize it, because she was the editor, the young editor, 38 years old, mother of a baby who died of ovarian cancer last fall. Mm. And after, in her, after her death, her last wish was to raise money with RIP medical debt to pay the debt of people, medical debt of people who can't afford it. And uh, her family raised more than a million dollars through that. That was my editor, Casey McIntyre. Wow. And was that local? She, no. Uh, she lived in Brooklyn. Okay. She was with Random Got House. It. But it went, I mean, everybody covered it at the Times, the po- Washington Post, New York Times, the Today Show, I believe, Good Morning America. It just, it went viral because of what she had wanted to do. But I always want to name her, Jenny, because that's wonderful. this book would never have happened without Casey. And I guess in a, as an adult, I mean, what was the impact on you to be the recipient of trolls and harassment online? Well, you are a woman in America with a social media presence, so I suspect you already know what I'm talking about when I say we are always going to be the target of hate. Um, I've been a columnist for more than 20 years, which has (laughs) given me some experience with that, starting with Cleveland.com when I was over at The Plain Dealer and the stuff that would show up there, and then as I became more active on social media. And one of the things that has struck me is how often younger women in particular reach out to me, including a lot of young women in our profession, um, who want some guidance on how to do this. How do I how do I deal with these trolls? How do I keep wanting to write or be on the air? And, and my attitude about it is, and, and it's I hope it's very much depicted with Lola, because we let it get in only with our permission. We let it start affecting how we feel and feel about ourselves and how we see ourselves only with our permission. But it does help to actually have that conversation with people who support us. It's important to have our own tribe, right, of friends and colleagues who support us. But the most important thing about it is we can't let it stop us. It can feel so overwhelming. It is so easy to attack someone like me now. I mean, I'm I'm in my 60s. I'm a grandmother and I look like it. Um, But what I've come to understand, and I wish I'd understood it sooner, the minute you go after my age or my appearance, what you think I look like, I win because it means you have nothing to say of substance about what I've been doing with my career. Great point. All right, let's talk about the book. So Lola and the Troll. Why don't you give us kind of the general plot summary? (laughs) Well, Lola is this sweet little girl who loves life, loves school. Everything changes for her, though, when she starts having to walk past the home of Tom the Troll every morning. He's new to the neighborhood. She always has at her side her little dog, Tank, who is modeled after our our little dog, Walter. I always joke he's everything we never wanted in a dog, and we adore him. (laughs) And I, I deliberately put the dog in there because children love pets, And I wanted comic relief with every page because it does get pretty serious for a bit there because the troll in Twitter form is holding up signs. And each day it's another insult about something about Lola. So he says her hair is too big and she puts it in a tiny bun. He says her eyes are ugly and so he, he doesn't like the color of them. So she starts squinting and wearing sunglasses. The worst for me, thinking of as a woman with granddaughters and a daughter, he says her voice is too loud, so she starts whispering everywhere she goes. Fortunately, there's, it, she has a trusted adult. I deliberately didn't make it parents because not every kid has that parent, right? Sure. But 
I, how many bookstore owners do we know who are just wonderful human beings? And Ms. Sneesby is one of those people. And she helps Lola realize who she really is, which gives Lola the courage to believe in who she is, that she's great just the way she is. And she stands up to the troll. And this was important to me as well. She doesn't just let him off the hook. It turns out he's just, you know, he's not who he seems to be either. He's actually a frightened little boy who is just trying to get noticed. But she tells him he's got to be held accountable, right? He's got to apologize to a lot of people, and he can start with her. Yeah, it's it's a darling book, and you're right. It's got a very kind of serious theme that I think all of us can relate to. And yet there is a a joy to it and kind of such a vindication when Lola and the community of kids get to see that this troll is not this scary, tall monster, but instead is a little kid who scared himself, who's taking the wrong tactics that's causing a lot of harm because he's scared. And I think that's an important point, whether you're an adult or you're a kid. Well, I've been really moved by the number of um, parents of boys and teachers who mm-hmm. have been saying, thank you for making the troll redeemable. Because, I mean, am I saying you go on Twitter and make friends with all your haters? No. I mean, these are supposed grown-ups, and that's really different. But with kids, often, there are reasons people bully. There are reasons children bully. And they have everything to do with how they're feeling about themselves, right? It's not to excuse it, but give us a chance to have that conversation as well. And the other thing that has really moved me about this, well, a couple of things. First of all, I said to my husband, Sherrod, the other day, why would I ever write for adults again? It's so much more fun writing for children. Sure. But um, how many adults are buying them for other, buying this for other adults, particularly women, buying it for their friends? Because there is an inherent message here that you, you know, as soon as, as soon as someone doesn't know how to take you down intellectually, they're going to try to take you down in such personal ways, right? And there's no there's no use pretending this isn't happening. What I want is for us to have a different conversation about how we're going to confront it, not just address it, confront it, right? And stay, and stay intact as ourselves and grow from this experience. I'm talking to longtime journalist, columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner, now children's book author. Oh, you have to say the Pulitzer Prize. Right? I mean, you should be so proud. Connie <laughs> am, Schultz. Thank you. She is in studio with me now talking about her new children's book, Lola and the Troll. If you have familiarity with the themes of bullying or trolls in your life, if you have a question for Connie, please call 866-578-0903. Or you can drop us an email at soi at ideastream.org. Or you can tweet us with something nice. (laughs) Now X. No, I wonder. So the troll picks on Lola for her appearance. And like we've already talked about, uh, if you don't have something really substantive to attack someone on, the easy gets, the low-hanging fruit can be their appearance. But then she becomes kind of a shadow of herself in trying to conform to what the troll says she needs to change in some respects. Do you think especially for girls on Instagram with those visual mediums, that is really at play? Because that's what shouted out to me when I was reading the children's book. I'm like, these are 13, 14-year-old girls who are acting, who are becoming shadows of themselves in order to appease, you know, some something out there that's saying you're not good enough. Right. I mean, Lola is trying to change herself in every way she can without the benefit, or I would say the hindrance, of Instagram filters. 
right? We we know this is a problem. There's been so much written about. The New York Times just came out with a powerful piece last week about how um, parents are putting their very young daughters out there to sell products, to raise money. And it's what the, the overriding message to these girls is, you're not good enough who you are, but we can make you somebody that other men want. Mm. And I don't know a more troubling message for girls. It, there's always been a version of this. I'm much older than you. I'm 66. There's always been a version of this. But now it is so much easier to get access to these girls and to chip away at their confidence. We know about, we, we could be talking about eating disorders right sure. now. We could talk about suicidal thoughts because of how they're feeling about themselves, because all of that is out there. And I, I'm hoping with this children's book, and not to get too serious here, right, because I want it to be a frolic, too. Sure. But there's a moment when Lola looks in the mirror and doesn't recognize herself anymore. She, mm -hmm. she says to the mirror, is this, is this still me? And that's the conversation I want us to be having with our children, not just girls, but little boys, too, right? You are good enough who yeah, you are. Sure. Let's build on the strengths that is you. I mean, you have two young children. You mm -hmm. can, and you can imagine where you go so quickly when you find out one of your children's being bullied, oh. right? <laughs> we have eight grandchildren now, um, eight new reasons to worry every day. I mean, I love them, but I'm so aware of the conversations they're having, particularly the conversations they're having about themselves. Yeah, I, you know, with two young boys, I, I want them to be proud of themselves every day and to be the authentic, joyous version of themselves every day. So uh, this resonates with me completely. I'm curious. So as someone who kind of wrote to adults for so long, yeah, uh, what was the process of trying to distill it into, like you said, a frolic, still a joyous, fun story that, that kids can maybe get read to at bedtime, um, but still translating some pretty serious themes? I was very nervous about writing this book because I have such reverence for children's books. Mm -hmm. I collected them long after my children were grown. Nice. And of course, now I have a new excuse with all these grandchildren and I read to them all the time whenever I'm around them. But Casey reminded me that it's a thousand words, a little bit longer than my average column that I'm writing okay. all the time, right? And I needed to play with it some. And she gave me a lot of time to write it. I took every day of that deadline to write it. And then you get to work with an illustrator. We got she, They sent me samples of various illustrators. I landed on uh, Sandy Rodriguez's work because I just love her and then hoped and prayed she'd be the one who would take it, and she did. Nice. And so it's a process. It helped that Casey said, have Lola try to model her after somebody you love, which was easy for me. That, that became my granddaughter, Ella. Oh, that's and it, it's not that she's exactly like Ella, but there's enough of Ella and Lola that I could then imagine the conversation. I could imagine the responses. And then my editors, my first editors, were some of my granddaughters and two of my grandsons. And when we would read the books, their questions were so meaningful to me. Why would she care what the troll says? Why would she try to change herself? Or, mm -hmm. oh, I would do that with my hair. Because we have a granddaughter who has gorgeous, long, curly hair. Oh, yeah, I could see that because most people in my class have straight hair. And so we have these conversations out of, but your curly hair is wonderful, right? And it helped inform the writing for me. It helped inform particularly the conversation she has with Miss Sneesby at the bookstore. What is this culminating moment where Miss Sneesby, who reminds her they're a lot alike, wild hair, 
They both have a lot of opinions. Of course, I was going to have this little girl have a lot of opinions, right? And um, and that that was a these are wonderful things about her. So it is a process, and you have to. My I was talking in the green room with your prior guest about writing and how my editor said to me, uh, Kate Medina, years ago at Random House, when I was working on my first novel, once you have the idea of what you're doing, you've got to give your mind breaks. you got to take breaks from the story because your mind will keep working for you. It was the best advice I ever got about writing fiction, and it applied so well in writing Lola and the Troll. Lola and Tank and the Troll, they, they kept talking. And I, writers will understand what I was saying. I understand to some people that sounds pretty weird. But they start rattling the cage, right, in your mind, and you wake up with ideas, or you're, you're out gardening, and you suddenly realize, no, this is the conversation that should be happening. It, it is definitely a process. And uh, we have a minute left, so unfortunately, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to answer this, but ultimately, you ask Lola to be brave. Yeah, to well, be brave yes. in you know the 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 sights of something that is a little bit menacing and, and and conjuring fear. Well, what I'm asking her is to be the brave person she already is. Right, right. She just has to realize that that is a part of who she is. Connie Schultz, thank you so much for joining us. The new children's book is Lola and the Troll. Where can people find it? Everywhere, but especially I would love for them to go to the independent booksellers in Cleveland. Okay, perfect. Thanks for coming into the studio, and thanks for sharing this book with us. And I can't wait to read it to my kids. Thank you, Jenny. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soy at ideasroom.org. We're on Twitter, now X, at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Yesterday, we discussed the resignation of Cleveland's Public Safety Director, Carrie Howard, and we received a lot of engagement. Pat wrote us, Carrie Howard lost my confidence when he stated that Frank Jackson's family was treated exactly the same as anyone else, when that obviously was not the case. We also discussed new warning technology being installed to reduce highway crashes when traffic slows down. Susan wrote, the biggest thing that needs to happen is to get drivers to slow their speed. I set my cruise control for the speed limit and everyone passes me. 70 miles per hour, I think, is a big incentive to speed 80 miles per hour and higher. And John wrote, you can install as many signs and warnings as you like, but until drivers start paying attention like they're supposed to, no amount of pre-warning will make a difference, in my opinion. Tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, it is the Friday Reporters Roundtable with your host, Mike McIntyre. This week, he's joined in studio by Connor Morris and Abby Marshall and by Karen Kassler down at the State House in Columbus. If you miss any portion of the program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. You can hear a rebroadcast of our program tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak with you again tomorrow.